bringing to life the souls of the past that until now have been lost to history. Talking Heart Island is a half-hour weekly podcast that explores the history of Heart Island, America's largest mass graveyard. Heart Island has been used as New York City's Potter's Field since 1869. It is estimated there are over one million people buried there. Because of recent advances in DNA and fingerprint technology, the identities of some of these previously forgotten and anonymous people have been revealed. The results are truly shocking. Talking Heart Island will interview a special guest each week, selected from an extraordinary assembly of scholars, authors, and scientists in the fields of history, law, medicine, and the arts, as we unravel a secret kept hidden for 150 years. So welcome to Talking Heart Island. And now, here is our host, investigative history writer Michael T. Keene. Thank you very much, Norma Jean. And this is Michael Keene, and we are Talking Heart Island. Today's episode is brought to us by the Andover Haunted House. They're a nonprofit organization that raises money for several local charities. And they have over 70 volunteers, and they claim real paranormal activity. And the Garrett Smith Estates home to the National Abolition Hall of Fame, located in Peterborough, New York. And one more quick thing before we begin. We've been asked, how can you listen to previous episodes of the Talking Heart Island podcast? And you may do so by simply logging on to our website, michaeltkeen.com. Founded in 1849 to care for indigent immigrants in Greenwich Village. St. Vincent's Hospital was sold in 2010 to create a multi-million dollar homes. In its 161 years of existence, the legendary institution treated survivors of the Titanic, tended to victims of both World Trade Center attacks, and served as ground zero of the AIDS crisis. With honesty, humor, and what are called flights of historical fancy, Ghosts of St. Vincent's tells the hospital's story through the eyes of a man who spent a winter on its seventh floor AIDS ward and who survived just in time for the drug cocktail that saved so many lives, but which also witnessed the deaths of over a thousand people subsequently buried on Hart Island. For more than two decades, Tom Eubanks was a magazine publisher, one of the original staff members of Outweek magazine, New York City's first gay and lesbian news weekly. For 16 years, he was the editorial director for restaurant Florent. He and his work in that capacity are featured in David Segal's documentary, Queen of the Meat Market. And more recently, he wrote book reviews and conducted author interviews for the Lambda Literary Review and Kirkus Reviews. 
And Ghost of St. Vincent's is his first book. Tom Eubanks, how are you doing this morning? I'm very well. Good morning, Mike. Hey, great. Me. I'm really thrilled to have you um, on the program. You know, this is what I'll question a very heavy subject. And I wonder if you could begin by uh, telling us when you knew that there was something wrong physically with yourself and kind of outline what, what occurred after that point. Yeah, actually, it wasn't anything that um, just kind of sprung up like a cold or anything. What happened was, uh, as, I, as I mentioned in the book, I was asked by a, uh, a friend of mine and her girlfriend at the time, they wanted to have a baby and they wanted a sperm donor. So they had asked me. And so I said, sure, that sounds great. Have a baby without responsibility. I think that's great. I'd love to do it. So they said, well, you need to go get an, AIDS, an HIV test first, of course. And I said, of course, yeah, that's fine. I was negative last six months. That's okay. I can go. So I went across to New Jersey because at the time, um, New Jersey, you could go and get um, uh, testing. This is, this is around 1989, 1990. You could get HIV testing anonymously. In New York, you still had to give a name. So I went over to New Jersey and got the test and it came back positive. So um, it was nothing that, you know, led me to a doctor and then found out. I found out quite by chance. And then um, once I went to the doctor after that um, positive diagnosis, I was told I had only two T cells left. So I was actually full blown AIDS at that point. But I did not know. And, and it happened that quickly? I mean, with, with, with the next already- six months? And it already take, it was already taking place in my body. I, of course, didn't know. Um, what happens when you seroconvert sometimes is that you have flu symptoms. And I was kind of a heavy partier at that time. So a flu or feeling run down wasn't a big deal. So I had probably seroconverted somewhere in the year or two years before that diagnosis. And because I was living so fast, um, my immune system was down to nothing. So basically, it was a wake-up call for me. So, so what did you do? I went to um, the uh, community health center and I went, you know, to find a doctor and they told me I needed to start taking AGT, which was the only drug available at the time. And I, of course, knew it was poison because I'd had lots of friends die taking it. So I just said, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to try to live uh, really cleanly. I'm going to do macrobiotic lunches and I'm going to listen to Marianne Williamson. And I just went off the deep end in a totally different direction and started to lived this very wholesome life. And then I got sick and I ended up in the hospital. And was that St. Vincent's Hospital? You went directly there? Yes, it was. It was St. Vincent's Hospital. I had um, I had taken care of um, a man who who, who died of AIDS, um, which I read about in the book. And then shortly thereafter that, I had trouble swallowing. And, um, you know, I thought it was just, who knows, something run the mill. And because I didn't have health insurance, I went to the emergency room. And they did some tests and they said, you know, you have a, you have an ulcer in your esophagus. And so for about six months, I couldn't eat or drink anything. Um, and at the time they thought it was, uh, they thought it was a cytomegalovirus, which is, uh, which is one of the, which is one of the, uh, symptoms, could be one of the symptoms of AIDS. Because AIDS is a syndrome of 26 different diseases. And that was one of them. What, um, that yeah, what, what year did this occur in? This was about 19, well, I found out in 1990, I ended up in the hospital around, around 95, 96. So I was in the hospital for 95, 96 is when the protease inhibitors came up. 
Right. So it, my uh, research into the AIDS epidemic in New York City was that for the first five years, 1980, 1985, nobody knew what it was. Uh, and so by 1995, things had advanced, at least as, as far as the knowledge of, of AIDS and, and perhaps some of the treatment, right? Correct. But by that time, we had lived with it for 10 years. And so we knew that it was a death sentence. So at that point, when I was in the hospital with this illness, I didn't think I'd make it out. And they didn't think I'd make it out, make it out, actually. And, um, you know, you had to settle up. You had to settle up everything at that point because you were not going to make it out. Or if you did, you were not going to survive very long. Right. So you had, we knew so, after 10 years of this, how, how, how we knew how the course ran. Right. So this was on the seventh floor. That was the area that was designated, so to speak, for uh, people with AIDS. At St. Yeah, Kansas. it was. It was. It was, um, and it wasn't like they set out to create that. Because um, in '81, when this started to happen and it started to steamroll, um, the you know St. Vincent's was in Greenwich Village, and so because of its location, it happened to be the place that took in most of the early AIDS patients. Um, at the time, it was called GRID, um, gay-related immunodeficiency. Um, and in the New York Times, they called it gay cancer. So um, it became the, the, the war because they didn't want anybody else to share the same floor with them because no one knew where it came from or how it could be passed. So therefore, basically, seventh floor became a quarantine floor. And so if you're on the seventh floor, you were on the seventh floor. You didn't go to any other floor. So it wasn't many, as if they said, oh, hey, take the seventh floor. It was out of necessity. Right. How many uh, patients were there when you were there? Uh, it was the entirety of the hospital floor, and the hospital itself was made up of a bunch of different buildings that had been built together through the years, you know, over the 161 years. So it was about five different buildings. It was an entire city block long, oh, half a city block long, I should say. Um, so I, I don't know, maybe when I was there, it was completely full. It was booked to the rafters when I was there in 95, and it was probably, I don't know, maybe 50 people, 60 people, two to a room. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. It was such a large um, that it's hard to guess. The um, so during the period of time you were there, you observed people dying. Yes, I did. The doctors and the nurses, wh what were they like? Um, <laughs> it's funny. In my book, I, I talk a lot about the nurses because the nurses were angels. The nurses were mm -hmm. really unbelievable. They actually, um, they, they. An interesting story is that when 9-11 when happened, um, the hospital called up the, the nurses who had worked on the seventh floor immediately because AIDS was like a war AIDS was like a war for us, and they had served in the trenches. And so when 9-11 happened, they called those nurses first because those, they knew those nurses could handle it. They, could, they knew they could handle what was going to be coming into the hospital. Right. So that's how intense those nurses were. Plus, those nurses could have worked anywhere, but they chose to work on that floor, that's which amazing. showed how amazing they were yeah they were right. amazing people right and, and the doctors was that a similar situation or I, I, the doctors that i had were pretty clueless um i hate to say that uh, i i had a string of doctors who misdiagnosed me and um and i and, and i wouldn't have died there if it hadn't been for a doctor who came in to replace a doctor that i had had who'd went on vacation so i mean the doctors were clueless but i don't know if they can be blamed it was such an overwhelming thing you know they were like I said, it was a war zone, and they were basically working in like a mash unit, you know? So it was pretty intense. And, and you attribute your 
not dying to a particular doctor who happened to be there replacing another doctor who went on vacation? I do. Can you talk yeah, about that I, a little bit? Yeah, sure. Because the thing is, at the time when you had HIV on your chart, the doctor understandably would say, oh, okay, what you're suffering from is HIV related. So therefore, the, the, uh, the, the hole in my esophagus, which was, causing, which, was, uh, which was effectively starving me because I could not eat or drink without extreme pain, um, they thought was age-related and that you know, it would just be an age-related death. So they treated me that way as if it was AIDS. So when this doctor went on vacation, um, this, this other doctor came in. I write about this in the book. She came in and she said, look, I've looked at your charts. I've looked at all of your endoscopies. And I'd like to try something different. Because basically she came in and she looked at it without the HIV and said, let's try this. And she gave me prednisone. And the prednisone actually healed my ulcer up in about three days. Mm. And I started eating again. And basically she brought me back. I, and I then suffered through pneumonia a couple of times. But she brought me back enough to, to survive in time for the protease inhibitors in 96, which then saved my life. So it was really a matter of months. If, I, if she had not come along, I would be dead. And if the protease inhibitors had not come along in 96, I certainly would have been dead. So it was, it was, it was partly her and then it was partly the, the advance of the medication. How long did you spend altogether in the hospital? It was a six-month straight period, and then after that, um, I had pneumonia a few times as I was recovering. So it was probably about eight months in total. But for the for the for the real brutality moment, it was six months straight through the winter, from from Halloween all the way through Easter. Was there a certain period of time after you were out of the hospital, after you had the bouts of pneumonia, where you said to yourself, "I think I'm going to make it." Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a couple of years after that. Um, mm-hmm. it was but really did that just come at one point, that. one point in time, you, it, the thought came to you or was it kind of gradually that you were getting it was better? Kind of a gradu- it was kind of a gradual thing. And it's, it's, I write to Buckus in the book also, uh, it's interesting that in that, that we, you know, we call what happened to me, what happened to me happened to a, a, a lot of people, those of us who were really sick and expected to die, but then we were brought back. It, it, um, it's called the Lazarus syndrome. Uh, right. In the West, we call it the Lazarus syndrome, which I think is interesting. In the East, you know, in, in other less materialistic parts of the world, they call it the Lazarus effect um, because they think that being brought around by antiviral medications um, is miraculous and they're thrilled to be alive. Whereas we in the West had a real tough time with it because, you know, we dealt with all the, we dealt with all the deaths. So there was guilt or regret. We had credit card debt, you know, um, just all kinds of things you then had to deal with because if you're told you're going to die and you expect to die and then you're all of a sudden brought back to life, what do you then do? It's a little tough, especially in a, in a society that then looks at you um, a little oddly when you do say that you have AIDS. Sure. Had you ever, and, and not many people have, by the way, have you ever, did you up to, to that point, had you ever heard of Heart Island? I had, I had, um, just being a New Yorker and loving New York history, I had heard bits and pieces of it. Um, I, what had, what had fascinated me the most about Heart Island was, uh, uh, there was a marker that you, I'm sure you know about called SCB one, 1985. Yeah. Talk about and that. It's, uh, it's, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's the first, it was the first baby to die of AIDS, the first anonymous baby in 1985 to die. I'm not sure what hospital, probably Bellevue. Um, but this, this, baby, this infant, um, died of age-related causes, and it was buried on Hart Island, and it was just 
it, there's just a single marker. I think it's still there, and it's SCB-1985, and it was buried far away from all the other babies. You know, all the babies were born in separate graves, but this baby, SCB-1985, had its own special grave hundreds of yards or hundreds of feet away from the other babies in the other graves. Right. Because I guess they thought that that baby would infect them. That's how that's how scared people were in 1985. That a baby's right. death, you know, would you know just terrify them. Enough, just you know, relegate it to Siberia on Hard Island, which which itself is a horrible place to be. Oh, I believe in that same year, they buried uh, something like 15 AIDS patients at one time, and they buried them all uh, 14 feet deep. Uh, and again, you know, what was the purpose of that? Were they afraid that this AIDS virus would somehow seep out of the earth and yeah. uh, and do yeah. what? And, and in fact, who? Um, you know, well, but, yeah, I mean, the, the other corpses, you know. Pardon and, me? I mean, did they think it was going to affect the other corpses, you know, like make right. zombies yes. or something? Right. Right. You know, uh, Tom, what, what I'd like you to do, we talked about this a little sure. bit. Your book is... Uh, I thought very uniquely uh, inspired and put together because you incorporate not only, it's not only part memoir, but you also have incorporated uh, historical characters uh, into the book. And I wonder if there's uh, certain sections you might be able to read to us. Yeah, um, I I could. Uh, would you like to hear about uh, people? Because I think what I do write about in there in, in the book is I write about specific patients who spent time in St. Vincent throughout the years. So I, I go back to, for instance, uh, Emma St. Vincent Millay, the poet. Her middle name, right. St. Vincent, comes from the hospital because her uncle was brought back to life by the hospital. So I tell that story. Um, and I also tell the story of Vito Russo, who was an amazing, um, uh, amazing uh, gay hero, basically. He wrote a book called The Celluloid Closet, which is a, which is a seminal work about um, gay depictions in cinema. And he was an amazing, uh, amazing activist um, in the early days and also during ACT UP, which was the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. And he spent some time in St. Vincent's also, and I write about him. And I also write about Robert Mapplethorpe, who spent some time in St. Vincent's before his famous or infamous um, show at the Whitney, his retrospective. Um, neither of them, of course, have left the highlight. Um, but I write about a, a bunch of the others who, I mean, of course, Dylan Thomas died there, not from AIDS, but the King's Court, Dylan Thomas died there. So a lot of people were passed in and out of St. Vincent's. I'm not just the one who were, you know, indigent. There were a lot of very well-known people. Right. Uh, but, but I could read, uh, there's something just about me being on the uh, in the hospital I could read quickly if, you know, if you'd like to hear it. Sure. Okay. Uh, this, the summer before I was admitted, the hospital recorded its highest number of fatalities attributed to the epidemic. Nationwide, the death toll for AIDS was 62,734 people. And just as a note, this is uh, 1995. Uh, realistically and statistically, I was not expected to survive, but I did. But I'm not a ghost. If anything, the virus is. Thanks to a daily handful of pills, the virus lurks undetectably in my, in my lymph nodes. The hospital's transmogrification also haunts me. Surviving memories once left, as many of us were, for dead. Um, and basically, this is this is um, this is basically about the seventh floor. Uh, some veterans called the seventh floor the sevens. Others that fucking place. It was more of a waiting room only hospice than a functioning wing of a hospital. Like the city and microcosm, our beds constituted valuable real estate. We held onto them for as long as we could. 
while immunocompromised comrades waited downstairs for space to up. We tried not to get too familiar with one another. The seventh floor was no place to make friends. It wasn't a community. We were all transients. So it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. That, how long did it take you to uh, write the book? Um, it took me about 10 years. It took me, um, it took me about 10 years because I lived, I lived around the corner from it in, in the West Village. And I would walk by it um, a lot, and I knew that it was it had filed for bankruptcy. There was a huge there was a huge uproar when um, it went bankrupt, and um, it was really sad because you know that neighborhood doesn't have a hospital now. So heaven forbid another 9/11 happens, there's nowhere for those people to go downtown. There's no hospital. The nearest hospital is you know up midtown. So they took that hospital away so that they could basically make a lot of money, and now you know. Those are multi-million-dollar condos. So I just, I, I knew it needed to be memorialized because it was, it was personal for me. But I just also, I was just offended that they were even taking the plaques down. You know, there were plaques right. that were up that signified all the historic things that happened there, and they were taking those down. And then when they went to build an AIDS memorial, the people living in the million-dollar condos didn't want to look at an AIDS memorial, so they had to tone it down and they had to make it a little more appeasing. They had to make it more this and more that. So just the whole thing needed to be documented before I was gone, before I was gone. It needed to be, it needed to be recorded. Where is the AIDS Memorial located in New York? It's at the, there's a triangle um, that I write a few, uh, it's really interesting. This, this, there's a triangle at the intersection across from uh, St. Vincent's, which is, um, it's the corner of uh, 7th Avenue, Greenwich Avenue, and West 11th Street. And at that corner, there's a triangle. And on that triangle, it's a tiny, thin little triangle, but on that triangle stood um, a theater, a, a huge movie theater, where the, where the guy who kidnapped the Lindbergh baby was caught. And it, uh, um, uh, it was painted and painted. It was a very famous theater. I'm trying to think, Lady Day performed her last show there. So it was in that space there that put the AIDS memorial. And instead of talking about all of the history that happened on that spot, they negate all of the stuff I just told you and make it this just this white, a boring sculpture that has nothing to do with anything, much less AIDS. So it, it was, it's just kind of a mistake. It's kind of, it's kind of a sad reflection on the city, really, and how, and how it just does not treat its history properly. Right, now, I, I know that you're basically a lifelong New Yorker, but now you're living large in San Diego, correct? I am. I am. Yes, that's true. What, 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 what are you up to today? And, um, do you have anything on the horizon, you know, as far as maybe another book, which I know you can't talk about, but but talk about it anyway if you can. <laughs> yeah, I'm working on a new book now that um, it's interesting because when I was in New York, I moved here, I moved to Southern California a year and a half ago, and um, when I started the book, I was still living in New York, so the book itself was was the kind of thing that a New Yorker would write. It was about real estate and a building and this and that and the the neighbors and how they get along. Um, and then when I got here, I realized that none of that was important to me anymore. Um, but the ideas in it still were. So I just decided basically to do what I did with this book and it's to make it part fiction, part, uh, nonfiction and make it more of essays. Essays that tell a story kind of of the time we're living in now. Um, so it's kind of a continuation of this book and that I deal with, um, some of the same issues with, with family and, um, and, uh, and friends and friends becoming family because your family rejects you. Um, and who gets to tell the story? Who gets to tell the story of AIDS? Who gets to tell the story of this country? Who gets to tell the story of, 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 of gay rights? 
Um, so, so that's what I'm working on now, or kind of a continuation of this book. So if someone was interested in picking up a copy of Ghost of St. Vincent's, do you have a website? Can they go there and purchase a I copy? I do, I do. They can, yeah, they can go to ghostofstvincents.com. Mm -hmm. um, they, can, uh, they can check out my Instagram account, uh, Tomosphere, T-O-M-U-S-T-H-E-R-E. -E. And that has a lot more about the book and about a lot of the crazy characters that are in the book. Right. And um, they can also uh, go online and buy it whenever they'd like. Well, that's And fantastic. it's in a number of libraries as well, so. My Very proudest good. achievement was getting this book on the New York Public Library, so right. get it there. Well, Tom, I, I want to thank you an awful lot for being a guest on Talking Hard Island. Your your firsthand account uh, was mesmerizing, really. And you. you know, your your insight into you know this particular period of time in New York, the AIDS epidemic. Uh, we during the course of writing my book about Hart Island, uh, when I came across the fact that 100,000 people died of AIDS in New York City alone, it, it now occupies a very significant part of the book and a very significant part of the podcast. So anyway, uh, Tom, I thank you very much for for taking the time and sharing your, you. uh, your story with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hi, this is Norma Jean. I wanted to take a moment to remind you, in order to receive updates or news about upcoming episodes of Talking Heart Island, Simply go to the subscribe page on our website, located at www.michaeltkeen.com, and enter your email address. If you have any questions about the podcast itself, or simply wish to contact any team members for book inquiries, voiceovers, website or graphics design, use our contact page, also found at www.michaeltkeen.com. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to give us a review, please do so at iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. So until next week, this is Norma Jean, and we're Talking Heart Island. Music.